Any views or opinions expressed on KUR are not necessarily those of Kutztown University, Kutztown University Student Government, Kutztown University Student Services Incorporated, KUR staff and management or other affiliated organizations. Welcome to KUR True Crime. Today we have KUR True Crime case study. I am your usual host, James, and today I am joined by two fun guests. I have Linda and Jake in the studio. Hello. Hola. So today uh, we're going to go through a case together. I'm going to tell them everything there is to know about it, um, and they're going to interrupt me, and that's fine. We're going to have fun. (laughs) So we're going to start. I'm going to give you a little intro to where we are, uh, give you a little layout. So, we are in Circleville, Ohio. It is a small city in the center of Ohio, founded in 1810 along the Scioto River. Um, It was an industrial town and agricultural town in the mid-19th century. Agriculture is still important in the community, but it's becoming more of a small town that people from Columbus, Ohio are moving to, making it a satellite community for the state's capital. Population was around 12,000 in 1998. It has risen to almost 14,000 by 2020. How close is it to Columbus? It's about an hour from Columbus. Okay. Mm-hmm. So not quite a suburb. Not quite, no. But a lot of people commute to Columbus from Circleville. Circleville. Yeah. That sounds like the name of like some terrible setting in a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are going to see. It is going to be kind of like the setting of a horror movie in a few minutes. But it is Ohio. It is Ohio. So. Open land and serial killers. And corn. <laughs> and <Yeah>. corn. <laughs> and the Mothman. The Mothman, too, yeah. Circleville is famous for its annual pumpkin show. Circleville, that's pretty much all it is. It has its annual pumpkin show once a year. Um, so it's pretty innocent, pretty small town. That would all change in um, the late 1970s, supposedly in 1976, when several residents found handwritten letters in their mailboxes. All of them were postmarked from Columbus, and they had no return address, and the letters all contained personal information about the people receiving them. The sender made accusations about things like embezzlement, domestic violence, affairs, and even murder. So this is like a vigilante type. I guess so, but they're like threatening these people. Right. Yeah. So. um, How much personal information are we talking here? Like. Well, it was things like like, stealing their identity, or like they just knew where all their kids. No, it was things like I know who you are. I know what your kids' names are. I know where you live. And also, you definitely murdered someone. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, like all information you could find on your. Facebook page. <laughs> right. If this weren't 1976. <laughs> of course, right. <laughs> yes, <course>. definitely. <laughs> the unknown author would come to be known as the Circleville writer. It wasn't until 1977, a year after the letter started, that the Circleville writer would choose their main target. 
the first person to be regularly targeted was Gordon Massey. He was the local superintendent of schools, and his first letter arrived to his office at Westfield High School on March 3rd, 1977. The writing was in blocky, capitalized writing with grammatical errors that would come to be the writer's trademark. So it's like uh, the stereotypical serial killer note thing. Right. Okay. Very much Talking like... like cut-out magazine letters? And no, like <laughs> it was... <laughs> it was written like that. It was uh, written, okay. but it was okay. in all capitals, and they were like square-shaped almost. They had fun. an aesthetic, at least. They did. <laughs> it was their trademark. It was their trademark. The letter said the following. Quote, Dear sir, according to my GF, you have asked her to go out many times and have asked the other female bus drivers, too. This must stop at once for the good of the school and families. If they are not stopped, I will be forced to write to the school board, and I would hate to do that. To prey on another man's girl is untouchable. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced word I cannot say and start up with her and leave my girls alone. End quote. So... Gordon Massey, the superintendent, supposedly had an ideal suburban life. People started to doubt that. Supposed. But yeah, he was successful in his job. He had a wife. He had a teenage son. And they were all seemingly happy. But this letter made people really question that. But of course, he denied it. The initial letter ordered him to stop the affair or else the writer would tell the school board. Um, he wasn't given much time to act on this threat. The next day... Another letter arrived at the high school, this time delivered to the school board itself. Enclosed was a four-page document accusing Massey of sexual harassment and demanding that the school board fire him. Okay, I mean... <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Parts of this letter accused Massey of, quote, picking on the weaker ones constantly, end quote, and the writer warned, I sure hope he does not upset my girl for his sake. Is this like, is this like a disgruntled parent or something? This is supposedly someone who is in love with a woman who is a bus driver. Oh, okay. And Massey is having sexual relations with that woman, supposedly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Another letter arrived that same day. Um, where the writer claimed to be keeping track of Massey's various sexual escapades and the exact bus drivers he was flirting with every day. These accusations, of course, were from an unknown author, um, not very reliable. So, you know, they weren't quite enough to move the school board to action, so the writer took to further measures. They sent a letter to the school's vice principal, on March 18th, promising to send proof of an affair by Massey. This letter pointed to a specific female school bus driver, saying, quote, I want to protect your school. It has a good reputation. You should keep it like that. I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. She has a child in school there now. I shall prove this shortly. I expect him then to be discharged. You'll see that I am telling the truth, end quote. So who was school bus driver 62917? Yes, please do tell. You asked? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm glad you asked. Her name her name was Mary Gillespie. Gillespie. She was married mother of two. Mary was married. Mary was married. Mary was married. Um, and she was also receiving threatening letters at the same time, unknown to Gordon Massey or the rest of the school board. 
Her first letter said, quote, Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. End quote. Oh, that's... See, I don't know how I'd react if I got that. I feel like if I'd read... I'm reading it like, please take this serious. I just won't take it serious. Right. Just like, who and why? Because you told me to. Hmm. Right. The writer's very much like, <laughs> oh, you need to take this serious and do something. Yeah. Mary didn't do that. Yeah. She didn't do anything. See, Mary, Mary and me would get along. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, letters postmarked from Columbus, no return address, no signature inside, no way to tell who sent it. Like I said, she doesn't do anything. She keeps the letters to herself at first. She okay. hides them. Pile starts building up. So she doesn't go to the police or anything? She doesn't go to the police. She doesn't tell her husband. Okay. She hides them from her husband because she doesn't want him to find them and freak out, first of all, that she's cheating, and second of all, that she's being threatened. Now, is it true? Like, was she cheating? With we'll, prob- prob- we'll get into that okay. later, all but right. that's a good question. She would later deny the affair. She said she didn't want to show him just because she didn't want to worry him, not because she had an affair to hide. Hopefully, she thought the letters would just stop if she didn't do anything. Um, They didn't. (laughs) Instead, they arrived. More of them arrived more quickly, um, and they contained more aggressive threats. The writer listed specific details about her bus number and route, meaning they had inside knowledge of the local school bus system. Another letter read, quote, Lady, this is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. A pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs, causes families and homes and marriages to suffer, end quote. So really just like laying into this, like doubling down. This writer's like, I'm going to die on this hill. You're cheating on your husband. I'm like, why do they feel so invested in this? Like this this person's whole situation. I don't. Like, this is my business, <laughs> and I will make it everybody's business. Okay, so still, Mary ignores the letters. She hides them. She's getting a pretty big pile of them, though. Um, even with all the direct threats and comments about her children, unsatisfied with the response, the writer goes further. The first letter was sent to Mary's husband, Ron Gillespie, in early April, and it said the following, quote, Mr. Gillespie, your wife is seeing Gordon Massey. You should catch them together and kill them both. He doesn't oh. deserve to live, end wow. quote. Okay. Did he think that was just going to like, like, yeah, that'll work. That'll. <laughs> yeah. He's like, first letter, let's just go all <laughs> let's in. Let's just go for it. Just Let's tell him to kill him. No. And he definitely will. Right, yeah, because he's not a person with his own free will and train of thought. No, no, no. no. So um, now my next question. Yeah. Does, does he do it? Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, the letter also demanded Ron admit the affair was happening to the school board or else Ron would die. Okay. So Ron confronts Mary and he, uh, she admits that she was also receiving letters. She denies the affair and promises him that an affair would never happen. And together they agree to keep things quiet and not give the writer the response that they were so desperate for, clearly. So two weeks later, Ron receives another letter that reads the following, quote, this is a long one, 
Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. You are a pig defender. You are also a pig. Make her admit <laughs> the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. Only pigs ride motorcycles. Good hunting in your red and white truck on your way to work. I followed him for weeks since last summer and have seen her meet him several times. You will see this is no joke. End quote. Oh my. Like, okay. This guy's got to have a job or something, right? Like, what is... <laughs> how does he have time to just follow all these bus drivers? It's, yeah, it's a lot of work. this principal guy. Meanwhile, also, this person's still writing letters to, like, other random people. And, like, is that the only action he's taken so far? Is it only is it only been private letters up until this point, or has he done any posters or anything? No, so far it's been posters? letters. But now okay. they're threatening, well, I will do posters and billboards. Were they not threatening? Money do they have to do billboards? Uh, yeah, that's, that's an investment right there. Well, 1976, I guess. Billboards cost like three cents, so. Did they? I don't know, because they <laughs> cost like <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars now. <laughs> For three cents. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. Anyway, this letter did have a return address. Ooh. <gasps> Legasp. <gasps> no, <laughs> no, though. Don't worry, though. No. The writer didn't mess up. They didn't reveal themselves. Was it what, a P.O. box or something? Well, the address that it said was the return address was actually the address of Gordon Massey. <gasps> the superintendent. Oh, my. Okay, smart. Yeah. Smart. <clears throat> Mary and Ron did tell three people about the letter's existence. Ron's sister, her husband, Paul Freshour, and Paul's sister. Freshour. Yeah. So Ron's sister, Karen, and her husband, Paul Freshour. They're going to be the two most important to remember. And together, this group devises a plan. They're going to send letters to the Circleville writer. How? Paul Freshour, Ron's brother-in-law, would later say, quote, We thought we'd scare the guy. We sent him four or five letters only. There was no violence in them or anything. Just that we knew who, who he was and what he was doing. And we sent him the letters, end quote. Where are they sending the letters to? Well, that's a good question. If no one knows who the Circle Bell writer is, <laughs> how do they like, know where to send them, right? They just, like, tape them up somewhere in town? Well, no, they do send them to someone because they think they know who the Circle Bell writer is. Is it Gordon Massey? No. Oh, man. Mary has a theory about who the writer is. She believes it's David Longberry, a fellow school bus driver who had attempted to flirt with her months before. Mm. The two were previously friends but hadn't talked much after Mary turned down his romantic advances. The theory could make sense. It would explain the frustration the writer had with Mary and Ron, as well as with Gordon Massey, if the affair was real. It also explains how invested the writer was in the bus driver's romantic lives and the writer's way of referring to the female drivers as my girls. It would also give him access to information about the bus numbers, routes, and information that the author proved to have in the first letters. I mean, yeah, that'll do it, but like, seems a little hypocritical of him to, you know, call out somebody for having an affair and after he already tried flirting with the married woman. Right. right. She's mad that he was like, <laughs> hey, let's have an affair. And she was like, no. And then she's having an affair with Gordon Massey, supposedly. Uh, okay. That was their theory, that that was why he was sending the letters. So That makes sense. Yeah. So Paul Freshour writes these letters. He sends them to David Longberry. 
the letters stop. So they're like, okay, we did it. <laughs> he was the circle wheel writer. Well, boys, we did it. Problem solved. <laughs> you know? Um, multiple weeks pass. Threatening incidents grow further behind them. And they're like, okay. No more Circleville writer. Forget that guy. A while later, Ron's driving home one afternoon. And he's forced to stop when he sees a, so- a sign alongside the road. It had scrawled handwriting on it that accused Gordon Massey of having sexual relations with the Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter. Ron pulls the sign down and takes it away. Signs continue to pop up around town, particularly along Mary's bus routes. Well, that escalated. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Went from accusing him of adultery to accusing him of pedophilia. Yeah, pedophilia. So, Ron's not very happy about this. Um, and the Gillespie's are pulling him down. Mm. The signs are popping up faster than they can take him down. So, they just keep popping up everywhere. Rumors can't be hidden fast enough. People are seeing them. People are saying things. And the story spreads. And this puts pressure on Ron, who, according to his brother-in-law, Paul was devastated and distraught and didn't get much sleep during that period of time. He was frantic. He would drive around an hour or two in the morning before his shift began looking for any obscene posted signs. And this attempt to stop the problem continued throughout the summer of 1977. So it's a long time. It's like months of signs being put up. Hmm. And no one's done anything? Like, besides trying to take them down, obviously? No. Ron, Ron's just like, I've, I got it. I guess, I guess it's 1970s, so they probably just didn't have street cameras. Okay. No. No. No one's seen anything suspicious. I mean, that's why so many serial killers got away with it back in the 60s and 70s. And right. Police are like, uh, whatever. It yeah. looks, when I'm like reading through all this, it looks pretty much like they have one police officer in this town. That's it? Just The one? sheriff, who we'll talk about later. But What was his population again? At this point, probably somewhere around 12,000. And they only had one cop? I don't know. He's That's the only one who's mentioned. There's never, like, a police investigation mentioned. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine if it's that small of a town, it's probably not as big a priority because nothing's really happened. Right. There's posters and letters. Nothing happens in Circleville. No. No, no not in Circleville. August 19th, 1977. Mm-hmm. Mary decides to take a trip with her sister-in-law to Florida. That night... Ron receives a phone call from someone nobody has ever been able to name. No one has ever been able to say who was calling him. Okay. The call made him so angry he grabbed a gun, told his kids he was going to confront the Circleville writer, and sped away in his truck. He didn't he didn't say anything else? Like nope. you know. Nope, that was it. What did the what did the The what, kids are what like happened oh. on the call? What was said? No one knows. But apparently he was yelling on the phone, and then he said, I'm going to confront the writer. Now, did he ever come back? Well, hours later, Ron's found dead. Oh. He crashed his truck into a tree. He had his gun, like I said. One shot had been fired from the gun. Bullet was never located. Questions were presented. Had he crashed on the way to the meeting with the Circleville writer? Was this the result of the meeting yeah uh was he chasing the writer when he fired that single bullet no one knows 
The autopsy determined he had crashed as a result of drunk driving and that he had a blood blood alcohol level of 0.16, yet his friends and family said he rarely drank and his kids insisted he wasn't drunk when he left the house. Still, the death is ruled an accident. What kind of gun was it? Not sure. I assume like a handgun though, because it says it was found like he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. And it says the gun was like on his seat. He like flew forward out of the seat and the gun was like on his seat underneath him. Okay. So I assume like a small type thing, not like a rifle. So obviously this whole accident determination angers a lot of people. Paul Freshour accused the sheriff of changing his story about the incident, saying, quote, The sheriff agreed with me that there was foul play. And then, when I contacted him again, he changed his attitude completely. End quote. Uh, this was supposedly because the only suspect, David Longberry, that other bus, bus driver, he passed a polygraph test. That he wasn't involved. Okay, but like... Are polygraph tests really that trusted? That's what I'm saying. There's this one sheriff guy, and he's like, all right, we have one suspect, David. And even if it's not him, though, it could have easily been someone else. Right. But they're like... That doesn't mean that there wasn't foul play. Right. They're like, we don't have any other suspects, so... So what? Investigation over? It was an accident. It's gotta be this guy. It's gotta be an accident, then. Yeah. Ah. This determination that it was an accident, surprisingly, also upsets the Circleville writer. (laughs) Uh, They send a letter to Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, accusing him of covering up the crime. In this letter, Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey are blamed for the crash. The writer (laughs) insists that this wasn't the sheriff's first cover-up. This guy likes... uh... Blaming those two people in particular. Yeah. yeah, he's really like on them. Do they not have any other enemies like these two? This this couple like no. Nobody else could possibly hate them. Supposedly, supposedly not. They never okay. named anyone else. What about Gordon Massey? He doesn't have any enemies. Gordon Massey again. He never named anyone else. Huh. So either these people are lying, or they think they're way more liked than they are. Right. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Superintendent Gordon Massey gets a divorce from his wife shortly after Ron's death. More letters were sent to other citizens accusing him and Mary of having a romantic relationship. Eventually, Mary admits that the two are involved romantically. However, she swears that the relationship didn't start until after Ron's death and after Massey's Mm. divorce. Seems a little convenient. Right. Yeah. No one's really believing this no. in Circleville either. Yeah. No. So. Circleville smarter than this. Yeah, Circle. <laughs> the people of Circleville. There are a few of them, but they are they. They are literate. They are intelligent. Right. They are educated. <laughs> they are educated. <laughs> intelligent. All this pressure. They claim that all the pressure broke up Gordon Massey's marriage. Clearly, the pressure broke up the Gillespie's marriage. It also causes Ron's sister and brother-in-law, Karen and Paul Freshour, to divorce. Paul gains custody of their children while Karen moves into a trailer in Mary Gillespie's backyard. 
because Ron was given custody of the children and he's given their house and most of their financial things. Okay. Just a season of divorce, huh? Yeah. Uh. Does he ever, like, take any other kind of action besides these letters? Or is he just like, I'm just going to cause chaos and watch it unfold? Well, they were putting up signs that Ron was trying to tear down. They did supposedly call Ron. They did, yeah. On the phone. And they could have potentially killed Ron, I suppose. Potentially. Potentially. Some people believe. But then why would they be mad about it being covered up as a... You think they would just take that as a win? Well, no, they don't because they blame someone else. True, but... Still, you think you wouldn't want to draw more attention to the fact they that it couldn't dr- be. They want to blame Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey. Yeah. yeah. Their obsession. They want to ruin them. Okay. Right. Fair. So in 1983, we get back to this whole thing. Mary Gillespie keeps receiving letters again. On top of this, signs are being placed around Circleville with obscene and inflammatory information about Mary and her children. And again, most of these signs are along her bus route. One day, Mary finally has enough. At the end of her rope, February 7th, an average snowy morning. Ah, picture it. You're a kid, you're waking up in the morning. You're like, snow day, snow day. Nope. Sorry. Murder. Murder. (laughs) Murder. Murder. Yeah. No. Um, Up to this point, though, had she still not taken any of the letters to the police? Is she still just piling them all or? I guess not. No, the police are not. I think the police are like somewhat the singular sheriff is investigating this, but there are no answers. Okay. So, you know, so February 7th, Mary sees a sign during her bus route that accuses Gordon Massey of being a pedophile who abused Mary's daughter. She stops the bus, gets out and walks over to the sign to tear it down. When she tears it off the post, Behind the sign was a box that had been connected to the sign with a string. Mary takes both the sign and the box with her onto the bus and home with her later that day. She pries the box open with a tool and inside the box is a gun. It had been propped up with styrofoam. The other end of the string that was tied to the sign is tied around the trigger. So... The writer must have known she was going to pull the sign down. And when she pulled it down, it was supposed to pull the string. And where the box was positioned on this post was right at head level. So if it had gone off, if the trap worked... It would have killed her. It would have killed her. But it didn't? It didn't. It didn't go off. The string okay. didn't pull the trigger. A little bit of it. poor planning on the circle yeah, of the writer's exactly. part there. Poor construction, yeah. Yeah, yeah he must not he, have... He must have skipped art class. <laughs> yeah, arts Sk- and crafts, he just yeah. skipped that whole section. So, Mary takes this trap to the police, who immediately notice the sloppy attempt to file <laughs> the serial number off the gun. Oh. Ah. The number is still visible in a lab, and it's traceable back to the culprit, the owner of the gun. And it is the person everyone would least expect. Paul Freshour, Ron's Ah! brother-in-law. I knew it. Learn more about Kutztown University and apply to become a Golden Bear today. Go to www.kutztown.edu forward slash K-U-R apply. That's www.kutztown.edu slash K-U-R apply.
Are you getting ready to enter the job market, but not sure what to expect from your first interview? Join us Monday, October 24th to Thursday, October 27th, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Career Development Center in Stratton Administration. Meet with friendly and experienced employer volunteers who will help you prepare for that upcoming job interview in your dream career. Through this experience, you will get feedback to improve your interview skills. Mark your calendars today for Mock Interview Mania. So, <laughs> with all signs suddenly pointing to Ron's brother-in-law, Paul, police begin to question what motive he could have possibly had. So, let's go through that evidence. So, Paul's marriage with Ron Gillespie's sister Karen had been rocky, to say the least. The two divorced months before the booby trap was placed. Mary claimed she was never close with Paul and that Ron was merely friendly with him before his death. Further pieces of information used against him include the job he held at the time of the letters, working at a brewery in Columbus. This would have put him in the right place to send the letters, all of which were postmarked from Columbus. Also, before that job, he worked as a prison guard at the Ohio State Penitentiary, where he and other guards were once held hostage during a riot in 1968. The 30 hours of torture and threats that followed were said to have a psychological effect on Paul. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're saying, oh, well, this happened and he was messed up. So I mean, it would put him in the right headspace to send these letters and make these what threats. What would start that? Though? Like, why, why target your sister-in-law and your, your brother? Like, hmm. And no one ever, like, all these people are questioned. Everyone's like, oh, I never would have expected it to be Paul. He's a very calm guy. You know, varying opinions here on Paul's mental state. Is it, was, okay, the letter, the sign that was put up about um, Gordon Massey being a pedophile, was it any different than the letters from before? Like, is there any discernible... No. changes in no. how the letters are written nothing the police are saying you know what this writing on the sign looks the same as the writing in the letters people can ho copy handwriting though but there's like there's very many differences that you can tell if you look close enough and i wonder if you know maybe he didn't make the original ones but he made the new one because he was maybe mad that right. they ruined his marriage right or kind of was the cause of that well, that's an interesting thought I didn't write that idea down, but there are ideas <laughs> that we will get into okay. for that. Um, but still, like all of this evidence, it's not very like definitive. Right. You know, it's all very like coincidental. So the only strong piece of evidence is the use of his gun in the booby trap. And that even raises questions because Paul claims the gun had been missing, that someone had taken it a while before the trap was placed. However, he had never reported it missing, so there was no evidence to support this claim. He claimed that he kept the gun in his garage and didn't check it often, so he didn't notice that it was gone. Seems a little oh, suspicious oh, to me. A lot of questions being raised here. Yes. Sheriff Radcliffe, who was accused earlier by the Circleville writer of performing a cover-up in Ron's death, calls Paul in to take a handwriting test. The test was incredibly flawed, not done right at all. 
It involved Sheriff Radcliffe giving Paul one of the letters and telling him to copy it as closely as possible. That's that's not, that's okay. (laughs) Obviously, right, Paul copies this letter. He does what he's told. Sheriff Radcliffe takes the sample and he says, oh, well, it looks the same. (laughs) So it is Paul. I wonder why. He's like, it is Paul. It's gotta be. So. That's ridiculous. Yeah, this sounds like the 70s, all right. Yeah. (laughs) So then when Karen, Paul's ex-wife, is interviewed by police, she insists that Paul is the Circoville writer. She even states that Paul had loved Mary and Ron, but after Ron's death, he hated Mary. She allegedly found a letter torn up and thrown in their toilet and a couple more hidden throughout their house. Paul is given a polygraph test and he fails, so he is arrested and he's tried for attempted murder. Before his trial, he goes to the Southwest Mental Health Center and checks himself in because he wants to plead insanity. This doesn't work out. He's discharged. He gives up on this. This is dropped. He pleads not guilty. Now we will go to the trial. So the letters are used against Paul Freshour, even though he was never charged with writing them. He's charged with setting the booby trap. So how can they bring them up against him? That's a good question. Should have been thrown out. Yeah, it would immediately be thrown out. That's okay. Judge doesn't throw it out. All right. Judge allows it. The handwriting. The sign was connected to the gun. Well, yeah, they're saying they're saying the handwriting on the sign with the booby trap was the same as in the letters. So, if the letters handwriting matches that of the sign, then it's the same person. Okay, and that's a fair assumption to make. But if they're gonna make that assumption, then charge him for writing the letters. Right, but they don't have enough evidence for that. They don't have enough evidence for anything, but they (laughs) still had to try. (laughs) The hand. They just want an end to their. Issue. Right. 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 Yeah, right. Right. Precisely. So the handwriting test is improper. We know that his results, though, match the writing in the letters. A uh, handwriting expert testifies that he believes Fresh Hour was the Circleville writer. Samples from his employee records at his old brewery job are also used and determined to be a match. Mary Gillespie testifies that she believes Paul is the Circleville writer. And she started believing that after Karen Freshour revealed her suspicions to Mary. Paul's boss testified that Paul had not been at work on the day the booby trap was set. He claimed that it was because he took the day off to have work done to his house. Multiple witnesses did report seeing him at home during that day. And that work that he claimed to be having on his house was true. It was proven to be true. Besides the letters that are used in the trial, even though they are irrelevant, uh, the prosecution didn't have much solid evidence. Most of their arguments are circumstantial. No attention is paid to the actual booby trap, the reason that he's being charged, and there wasn't much evidence related to it besides the fact that the gun was his. Nobody ever saw him near the trap. Hmm. Okay. I don't, like... I don't find it unlikely that he could be the one that set the booby trap, but I find it unlikely that he's the Circleville writer for all of it. Mm. Okay. I think it's much more likely that maybe he was pissed that Mary got his brother killed Mm -hmm. and did their marriage with him and his wife. Right. 
and wanted some kind of revenge for that, but... Also, another flaw of the trial. Mm. Not really a flaw, but a mistake. Paul Freshour never takes the stand to testify, to defend himself. I guess his lawyers warned against it. They were like, it wouldn't be the best for you. Um, This is definitely a decision he would later regret because the jurors felt the lackluster evidence was enough and they found him guilty of attempted murder. And he was given the maximum sentence of 7 to 25 years. So that was the end of it. Uh, just kidding. It wasn't the end of it. it <laughs> I was, was going to say, did the letters stop after that? It was or? supposed to be the end of it with the suspected Circleville writer behind bars, right? All of right. it's over. We got mm-hmm. him. Circleville's back to being happy-go-lucky. Right. Back to our annual pumpkin show. No oh, worries. Oh, man. That pumpkin show is going to be great. Letters don't stop. <laughs> More letters are sent to citizens uh, around Circleville and to Paul Freshour in prison. I was going to say, are they are they postmarked from prison? <laughs> from prison. No, they're sent to Paul <laughs> in prison. The top, just from prison. <laughs> <laughs> in really poorly written handwriting. In blue crayon. Yeah. 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 Um, Half he, the letters are backwards. <laughs> he served 10 years in prison and was never allowed pens or paper. The letters were still postmarked from Columbus. Paul was imprisoned in Lima. Even though Paul was locked in solitary confinement and monitored for 24 hours a day, the letters continued. The prison warden eventually determined it physically impossible for him to be responsible for the letters. Over a thousand letters are sent after Paul is sent to prison, and some contained arsenic. An attempt to poison. So, wait, who are these new letters lovely. being sent to? Is it still Mary everyone Gillespie still? Or yeah, it was already doing it to the town before, right? Uh, yeah. Right, just the whole town and Paul. Okay. Poor so, Paul. like, is is, Paul. is the whole town just in agreement that, like, <laughs> man, this is strange? The We're all getting letters. The town's like something is up. But that pumpkin show. But that pumpkin show's coming up soon. <laughs> but it was definitely <laughs> Paul. It was He's definitely Paul. Definitely Paul. So it's fine. They're um, just like, ah, oh, good old Paul. <laughs> So, um, these latest letters, they take on the state's political com- uh, corruption, including that allegedly committed by public prosecutor Roger Klein, the man who sent Paul Freshour to prison. The letters accuse him of getting a teacher pregnant years before and having her killed to cover it up. Oh. The writer threatens to dig up this teacher's remains. After insisting again that coroner Ray Carroll was guilty of child abuse years before, these allegations are found to be true. This was factual, right? Could it be then possible that maybe the rest is? everything else is? Dun, dun, dun. Including the allegations about Sheriff Radcliffe being corrupt? I wouldn't put all my trust in the police at that time, that's for sure. I would. Definitely not the Circleville ones, nope. No. no, I think the whole town should just up and riot and walk the streets looking for their writer <laughs> <laughs> with their pitchforks and yeah. torches. In one letter sent to Paul in prison, the Circleville writer taunts him, saying, quote, Now when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. End quote. Yeah. That's that. With all, right. all these questions, let's go through some of the theories yes. of what could have happened. Those so... First of all, obviously, Paul Freshour was the Circleville writer. Let's go through that, at least in some form. While looking into the case, uh, the show 48 Hours brought in forensic document expert Beverly East. She pointed out the uniqueness in the way the letter G is written, as well as some of the numbers. This convinced her that Paul Freshour was the Circleville writer. 
Many have determined it impossible for Paul to be the writer because the letters continued while he was in prison. That still doesn't excuse him from the letters sent before his arrest. It also doesn't mean there weren't accomplices. Uh, it's possible that any accomplices increased the number of letters being sent in an attempt to make him appear innocent. So people are saying, well, he had accomplices, they all wrote the letters together, and then he went to prison and they kept sending the letters to make it look like it couldn't possibly be him. Or maybe, possibly, he had pre-written all of the letters and had someone else continue mailing them while he was in prison. Seems a little far-fetched, yeah. Right. Me, but whatever. Whatever. Um, copycats have been suggested. We see that in a lot of cases. The story was a media sensation at its peak in 1983, and with the internet non-existent at that point, maybe one person said a threatening letter, and others were like, oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to get my anger out through letters. <sighs> see, like, I understand the copycat thing, but... Still, there's still the handwriting thing. Like you can, you can tell if it's not the same writing. Right. So. But then, if everyone's, if <laughs> the whole town of Circleville's sending letters to each other. Yeah. I don't know. This also doesn't automatically save Paul. Uh, he could have been guilty of writing some of the letters. No. Maybe he didn't write all of them. Maybe he wrote some of them. In fact, he later expressed distaste for Mary Gillespie when she continued a relationship with Gordon Massey, saying, quote, what kind of mother was she, end quote. That could be more just be mad that he's do that she's doing that after, you know, her husband or his brother just right. died. And right. But he was also extremely invested in convincing police to investigate the corruption accusations from the letters. And he would write a report later in life trying to prove himself innocent but would actually end up expressing a lot of the same opinions that were written in the letters. Putting himself in a little bit more. Right. Digging himself a hole. <laughs> Digging deeper and deeper. <laughs> Swing and a miss. Yeah. So let's look at theories for how he could have been innocent. A former FBI profiler looked at the letters and said, quote, if a crime continues on and you have someone in custody for a long period of time, you have to say, somebody else is sending these letters, they're not happening by magic, end quote. Seems logical. Yeah. Seems logical, Seems, you know? It makes sense. So David Longberry, our buddy, the bus Longberry. driver who attempted to flirt with Mary Gillespie, is still presented as a possible suspect. His motives, life, and opinions perfectly aligned with the first letters, Although he was dismissed by the sheriff, we've already discussed the possible incompetence of the sheriff. So, we'll forget that. Longberry. <laughs> Looking a little suspicious, then. In 1999, Longberry assaulted a young girl and went on the run. He would be caught and imprisoned for the crime. Some have theorized that this is proof of his willingness to be threatening or violent. Now, when that happened, though, did the letter stop? The letters had the already run. stopped. They had already stopped. They okay. stopped after Paul got out of prison in 1994, I believe. Okay. Um, when the Gillespies and Fresh Hours wrote a letter to Longberry accusing him of being the Circleville writer, the letters did stop. So this could imply it was him and that the warning scared him enough to stop sending letters for a while. This is true. It doesn't explain why he would start placing signs around town after being scared off but 
Paul Freshour was involved in the plan to send him a warning, so it's possible, if Paul was the writer, that he stopped sending letters for a while to make it seem like David Longberry was responsible. Many still argue that David Longberry is the most likely suspect for the first letters, even if a copycat eventually took over and if the signs weren't him. The next theory is that Karen Freshour, Ron's sister and Paul's ex-wife, was responsible at least for the booby trap. As mentioned, Karen and Paul divorced, supposedly as a result of her cheating on him. This was shortly before the booby trap was placed. Karen accused Paul of being physically abusive, but the judge sided with Paul and gave him full custody of their kids. Karen lost everything, as she was forced to live in a trailer on Mary's property. Maybe the anger and resentment that followed made her hungry for revenge. Mm. Sounds like this whole town's kind of angry, honestly. Whole town's a little <laughs> out of the mind. Whole town's a little bit upset. Many theorize Karen had someone put Paul's gun in the booby trap. She mm. would have had access to the garage where his gun was hidden. She also would have had a lot to gain from his downfall. After his arrest, she regained custody of oh. the kids and ownership of all of right. their property. Okay. Some have speculated that she worked with Mary Gillespie to take down Paul Freshour. That leads people to go even further and say Mary could have been involved in her husband's death. I'm going to say, is this like Mary and Karen working together? Perhaps. Uh, people argue this could be the reason for the sheriff's cover-up of Ron's death because he was covering for Mary. Not much evidence has been presented for either of these theories. Sorry, maybe it was Longberry, Mary, and Karen. <laughs> Mary and Karen effort. just wanted out of their marriage. Maybe. Hey. You know, best way out of your marriage is murder, right? <laughs> no, no prior options before that. Our last big theory of for all of this is by Martin Yant. He's a journalist and a primary member of the Innocence Project, an organization that has assisted in overturning more than 20 wrongful convictions. And he wanted to make Paul Freshour one of those people. So he found that shortly before the booby trap was found, by Mary Gillespie, another bus driver on the route noticed a man standing along the road in the same spot. He was standing with a yellow El Camino car. Uh, the description of the man did not match Paul Freshour. Paul had a solid alibi for where he was at the time of the sighting anyway. So what was the description then? It was like tall, sandy blonde hair. Does this match anybody that we've talked about before? Yeah, Not that we've talked about before. Uh, Karen Freshour's brother <gasps> owned a yellow El Camino. Dun, dun, dun. And the man seen alongside the road with the car matched a description of Karen's boyfriend at the time. Karen's looking pretty, uh, you know? Karen-y. <laughs> <laughs> Proof that the El Camino was involved in the crime seems to come from a postcard sent to the team for the show 48 Hours. When the show announced its plan to investigate the Circleville letters, a threat was sent to their office reading, quote, Forget Circleville, Ohio. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. End quote. El Sickos? El yeah. Sickos? So people think that El Sickos is the El Camino. Yeah. Like yeah, a reference. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. So the letter <laughs> the letter Paul Freshour received in prison also raises eyebrows. It talks about setting him up. Who could have possibly wanted to set Paul up more than his ex-wife, who had everything to gain? 
Now, have they ever followed up on this now? Like, is it still... I mean, obviously, Paul Paul already went to jail, but he didn't go to jail for the letters. He only went for attempted murder, correct? Right. So they, that, didn't follow they could this up. still fully open that investigation back up. They might, but the case is closed, I believe. Yeah. Because they got Paul. Also, a lot is looking not good for Karen here. She was the first to tell police that she believed Paul was the Circleville writer. Even though she claimed to have found some letters hidden throughout the house, she did not have any of them to present as proof. If she truly did find letters, why didn't she immediately go to the police to report them? You know? Because the whole marriage was supposedly rocky. So if she hated her husband... Okay, so she could have been planning something for right. a long time. Right, right, right. Without anyone knowing. When the show Unsolved Mysteries went to investigate, Karen was allegedly very unhappy about their involvement. She told others who were being interviewed that it would be in their best interest not to participate. She reportedly sat in her car across the street and took pictures of everyone who entered for interviews. Because that's not something a serial killer does. <laughs> that's not creepy at all. No, that's not strange. No, 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 no. Or, no. you know, to remember who spoke against. No, don't worry. She definitely just wants them for, like, her collection. Right, right. Keep up on her shelf. Yeah. Yeah. Outside taking pictures of all your neighbors. Yeah, I don't. I have a photo archive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the 70s. They would have had a, you know, maybe she had a scrapbook, you know? Maybe, maybe she was just really into scrapbooking. Maybe. You know? Maybe she was like, look at all my friends. They're so <laughs> cute. <laughs> Let me take nice pictures of them. Seems pretty fair, innocent yeah. to me. Yeah. Nothing I think she's fine. I, yeah. I think we can clear her as a suspect. Yeah. So. Now, Karen, on the other. <laughs> <laughs> Even if this anger for people participating was true, it doesn't make her a sure answer. Um, she was never considered a suspect by police. Some have referred to her as a convenient villain. Like, right no. place and right time. Oh, okay. Another theory, smaller theory, has raised even more questions. Supposedly, dun, dun, dun. Paul Freshour suspected his son Mark had been the one to steal the gun from its spot in the garage. A few people revealed that Paul had told them the gun was missing and one person said he believed it was Mark, his son. This was all before the booby trap, and Paul Freshour kept these suspicions to himself when the trap was found. Okay, who else had access to Paul and Karen's house? Like, how many kids did they have? I believe it was two kids. Two kids. How old? How old was the son? Not sure of those answers. No? Okay. Uh, Mark was a teenager. Teenager. It makes me wonder what the relationship was between the son and the dad at least makes you think yeah mark in 2002 took his own life so according to karen he had suffered from depression for a long time some believe it was a result of the built-up guilt that came from stealing his father's gun and landing him in prison possible possible i mean it could also be possible that he did steal the gun and then helped his mom they could have you know yeah. If he didn't if he didn't have a good relationship with his dad, maybe he did help his mom. Well, it was said know. that he was very close with both of his parents. Um Karen was very much after the v- divorce one of those you pick a side mm-hmm. kind of persons. Okay. The divorce happened, then Paul went to jail. Karen got custody of the kids and she was like, "You have to pick a side, either me or your dad." 
And so Mark obviously picked his mom's side because she was the one not in prison. And Mark... Gee, yeah, so many options. Yeah. Mark <laughs> Mark didn't end up visiting oh, Paul in prison. Move. Okay. What a, yeah, well, that's a, interesting, though. He didn't end up visiting at all. Right. And so that supposedly, like, tore him apart. Mark. Okay. Yeah, like, it upset him that and he had he to choose visit. a side. Yeah. But he didn't go visit, though. And, I mean, after right. a couple of years, he would have turned 18. He could have done, done right. what he wanted. Right. I don't interesting. know. Or maybe he's too guilty to visit. Maybe. I don't know, but I'm starting to think it was Karen. (laughs) (laughs) One of 48 Hours Best Criminal Profiles, Mary Ellen O'Toole, looked deeper into the letters. Um, She believes that the letters were the work of one lone author. She states that the gender of the writer is very difficult to determine, but that the writer was very clearly very manipulative. Uh, She did say that there are clear clues that the writer wants people to believe they're a man. Because of the grammar and spelling, O'Toole believes the writer isn't highly educated. It also is very clear that the writer was enjoying themselves, that they knew from right or wrong, and that they were okay with hurting people. Paul Freshour was released on parole in 1994. Um, His life is ruined by what happened. Nobody trusts him. Everybody thinks it was him. People are convinced that he is the Circleville writer. He has a heart attack and he passes away at 70 years old in 2012. Oh, wow. He defended his innocence until his last moments. Hmm. So that's it. Now, did anyone else ever die or, like, get harmed from these letters? Or was it all just purely threats? It was Ron. Ron was the sole death. Ron was the only death. Okay. Yep. And that's even still marked accidental. And then an attempted murder of Mary. Of Mary, right. Yep. Hmm. So th- I right. mean, that's, um, that's the end of our story, so. Interesting. I'm still, I'm going to die on this hill. I'm saying it's Karen. Okay. You know, they can't identify a gender from the handwriting. Mm-hmm. She had way too much to gain from killing off her husband. Mm-hmm. She got her son back and she had someone to steal the guns. Maybe she probably, she probably pressured her son to steal it mm-hmm. for her. Maybe he didn't know why. Maybe he did. Who knows? But right. would explain why he felt so guilty and why he wouldn't visit his dad after. Yeah. I agree with that. If she's looking very good as a suspect, if there was a way for her to get those letters to Columbus and send them. Hmm. Other than that, though, I don't know. No, I think I think it was definitely care. I mean, Ron definitely didn't like know about the letters if he was so angry. But then that makes me wonder who the call was from. Right. Unless he was talking to his wife, which probably wasn't. He would definitely recognize her voice. If only they had call records in 1976. (laughs) There is a a lot to think about and not a lot of answers. No. No. I guess we'll end it there. All right. Well, this was very fun. Very interesting. (laughs) I'm going to go tell people about this. Yeah, tell them the whole story. Writer. Beginning to end. This is like the Zodiac Killer, but like, like... Less murder. Less yeah. murder. Just More like, words, less action. Like the PBS version of the Zodiac Killer. Right. Yeah. I don't have many <laughs> answers, Next time, tell me, and I'll do my own research, too, and we'll compare. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. All right, cool. <laughs> See you next time for that. See you next time. <laughs> KUR True Crime is a student-produced show that researches multiple sources and is a production of Kutztown University Radio. Any theories presented are only theories and have not been proven as 100% factual. 
You can follow KUR True Crime on both Facebook and Instagram, and you can find all of our previous episodes on Spotify by searching Kutztown University Radio. You can also follow Kutztown University Radio on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Join us next time for another installment of KUR True Crime.